If you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, pray with me, please. Lord, you have told us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, your word is described as bread, food for us, as water, refreshment to our soul. And we pray, Lord, that it might be so for us this morning, that you would speak to us all, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts granting illumination, granting us to behold Christ with the eyes of our heart, and grant us, Lord, as we behold him, love for him, desire for him, conformity to his image as we see it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a mask on, you can shout out an answer to this question. Uh, how many religions do you think are practiced around the world today? Thousands. Thousands? Yeah. Guess. Oh, you said <laughs> thousands. Um, yes. So from the looking into it that I've done, uh, it seems like it's somewhere around 4,200 religions practiced around the world today. And this is, at the same time, both terribly sad and perfectly understandable. It's understandable because Scripture tells us that all people have an innate knowledge of the existence and the attributes of God, and that eternity is in the heart of all people. And it also teaches us that we know that something is very wrong, that we've made a mess of this world, and that we have a longing for things to be restored to a sort of utopia. There is that longing within all of us. We desire a, a restoration between humanity and its creator. And so in this chasm between what is and what ought to be, these thousands of religions have sprung up. And the, and the sad part is this. So many people in our world today are so misled because at the root of these thousands of religions, we might say there's essentially just one common core. The basic path to the restoration of the world or the reconciliation between humanity and its creator is through some prescription of religious duties and devotions. Some set of rules and observances that, if followed strictly enough, will result in a connection with the divine and an increasingly closer union with God, and consequently, a flourishing of the human experience, either in this life or in the next. So think, for example, five pillars, or ten principles, or a golden rule as a prescription and a solution. There is, however, one exception to this basic religious framework, the Christian faith. 
The Bible is the one religious book that puts forth an entirely different view of the solution to the problem in this world. Instead of this needed reconciliation with God being based on the actions and observances of humanity, you and I, reconciliation, according to Scripture, comes as a result of the actions of God himself. The Bible is the only book that teaches, as Jonah 2.9 says, that salvation is of the Lord. That we are saved by the actions and the merits of someone other than ourselves, namely Jesus, the Son of God. So we as Christians, we put off any hope of being forgiven by God for our wrongdoings or put into a positive relationship with God based on some set of rules or religious actions. We know that our good deeds are immensely insufficient to earn us God's favor. If God is going to extend favor to us as a fallen people, it will be based on his own character and his own actions, not ours. That is the glorious news of the Bible. That although you and I have committed crimes against God that are rightly deserving his condemnation, he has taken it upon himself to pay the debt that we owe through his son Jesus Christ so that we can be forgiven and granted a relationship with the God that we exist to know and to worship. So Christians rightly reject the thousands of versions of man-made religions in the world, knowing that they are impotent to deliver on their promises. Yet, there is still something about this formula of divine blessing and intimacy with God coming as a result of our own dutiful adherence that appeals to us. And though we might wholeheartedly believe that the door into the Christian faith is by by grace and through faith in Christ alone, we may at times be tempted to revert to thinking that once we're in a relationship with God, our growth as a Christian and our experience of greater degrees of nearness to God will come as a result of our merits. Now, that seemed to be the idea that the Colossian Christians were being tempted to believe. These brothers and sisters were genuine believers. They heard the gospel. They put their faith in Christ. Paul says of them in chapter 1 that they heard and understood the grace of God in truth and that they had faith in Christ Jesus. And this filled Paul with gratitude to see genuine believers who were, as he says, bearing fruit and increasing. And though Paul was not present in Colossae, It was his heart to see these saints grow into mature Christians. He says that he was praying without ceasing, that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he says that the aim of his ministry to them was that on the last day he may present everyone mature in Christ. And to that end, he says, he toiled and struggled on their behalf and sought to influence them toward Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, as he says. And they were indeed in need of both teaching and warning. 
seems from even the passage of Scripture that we read earlier in chapter 2 that some teachers had crept into the Colossian church and were promoting a certain path towards Christian maturity that was at odds with the message that Paul was preaching. He called their teaching empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And he warns them not to be taken captive by it. These teachers who were influencing these brothers and sisters uh, were part of a, a group uh, known as the Judaizers. And they taught that the way to true spiritual maturity was through obedience to certain Old Testament ceremonial laws. That, that trusting in Christ was important, but insufficient for the whole of the Christian life. They taught of the necessity of things like dietary restrictions, observance of religious festivals, an ascetic lifestyle, and avoidance of coming into contact with certain things deemed unclean if someone is going to grow into a mature spiritual person. These teachers passed judgment and disqualified certain Christians in Colossae based on their adherence or their failure to adhere to these doctrines. And Paul rejects this teaching outright. He declares that these things, as he says in the verse prior to our section, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The mere observance of outward practices did nothing to change the heart and the desires of a person, which is what is most important. And this same threat faces us today also. The idea that the same gospel that brought us forgiveness and reconciliation to God is not able to bring us all the way into Christian maturity. It's the idea that the gospel is merely the ABCs of the Christian life and not the A to Z of the Christian life. Now, our supplementary, supplementary uh, commandments might be different today than those that were being taught to those in Colossae, but they carry with them the same threat. Consider these ideas. If I evangelize enough people, if I fast often enough, if I am hospitable enough to my fellow church members, if I go to prayer meeting each week, if I read my Bible and pray enough each day, if I give enough money to the church, then my devotion will be rewarded with greater heights of spirituality and maturity. Now, of course, none of these things are bad. And just in the same way, none of the commands that these Judaizers, these false teachers were promoting were necessarily immoral. But the problem for them and the threat for us also is that we might treat the fruit of the Christian life as the root of the Christian life. So we, like bad gardeners, might try to make a plant grow by sprinkling some water on its leaves rather than on its roots. And I'm no green thumb like Gracie, but even if you're not, you would agree that that's a bad idea and will be futile. But that's sadly a common thing in many evangelical churches today. The gospel of Jesus' life death and resurrection are preached as a call to people who are lost to come to God. 
But once accepted, the impression that you can sometimes get is that the way to spiritual growth is by following 10 steps to this or five keys to that. The gospel message gets left at the front door and discipleship and growth are portrayed as something totally disconnected from it. Uh, Alfredo, do you mind grabbing me a napkin or something? I'm hot. (laughs) I just have to be honest. Um, so that leaves us with the question what then is the way if my actions and my strict adherence to certain religious practices aren't the foundation of spiritual growth what is if that approach is as Paul says futile in stopping the indulgence of the flesh then what can accomplish that? And that's what Paul writes these words in our passage today to answer. His aim in these verses is to lay out a blueprint to walk in the fullness of Christ and to live as mature Christians who reflect the character of Christ and make much of the gospel of Christ. Thank you, sir. It was the elephant in the room. I had to call it out. So Paul seeks to answer that question. But unlike the Judaizers that we read of in chapter 2 earlier, that teach that maturity comes from the things that you avoid and abstain from, Paul teaches that maturity comes from what we delight in and what we meditate on. And so those are the two milestones on Paul's roadmap to Christian maturity in this passage. The first is delight in the exalted Christ. And the second, meditate on your identity in Christ. So let's read our passage. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first milestone I'm calling Delight in the exalted Christ. Look with me there in the, first, in the second half of that first verse. Seek the things that are above. Literally, seek the heavenly things. And the reason why I say delight is because of the significance and the implications that are carried in that word seek. It has a couple of connotations. It, it means to look for something that belongs to you and demand it. And something that you have lost. Look for something that you have lost and demand what belongs to you. It's the same word that Jesus uses in his parable of the lost sheep. Where there is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. One of these sheep that belong to the shepherd goes missing. And because of his love for that sheep, that sheep is precious to him. That's what Jesus sought to communicate in that parable. He leaves the 99 and seeks after, pursues that one sheep 
to lay hold of what belongs to him. It, it communicates a deep love and affection for the thing that you're seeking and, and also a priority that finding it takes in your life. That is the type of fervor that Paul is trying to capture with that word. A delight, a priority, an ambition for heavenly things. And the tense of the verb as he uses it is an ongoing action. Continue to seek, continually seek. This is a daily reality for the Christian life, is to be seeking the heavenly things. And it's not that we don't have other responsibilities in this life, but it speaks to the priority that we are to give to this pursuit. Here's a quote from George Mueller that I think really captures this idea well. He says, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you, the Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. To delight in the heavenly things. And in this first verse, there are three such heavenly things things, heavenly realities that Paul describes, and they all have to do with Jesus Christ. The three of them are this. Christ is in heaven. That's the first one. Look with me there. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. This Jesus, the man that we read about in the pages of this book, is right now, on this Sunday morning, in heaven. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. And the fact that he right now is in heaven has massive implications. First, we'll say this. The fact that Jesus is right now in heaven implies that he conquered death. Jesus came to this earth on a mission, and he understood what his mission involved. In fact, on a number of occasions, he told his disciples that his earthly ministry would lead to his eventual death. He said that we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the religious leaders and will be put to death. But on the third day, will rise. And his disciples in the time didn't understand what he meant and didn't understand the significance of it. But we're going to read a passage here from the day of Pentecost where Peter is proclaiming the good news of Christ. And this is what he says. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Jesus came to this earth and took head on the great enemy of mankind, the grave. Every tombstone you drive by, every obituary that you read testifies 
to the flawless record that death has in this world. That one by one, every single day, death comes for us all. And yet here, the fact that Jesus is right now in heaven testifies that there is one who conquered this great enemy of mankind. The second thing is this. Not only did he conquer the grave and death, but he defeated sin. The reason for the death of Christ was sin. The scriptures in, in Romans 6 teach us that the wages of sin is death. The, the recompense for sin, the debt that results from sin is death. And here in Colossians, Paul says in 2.14 that Jesus canceled the record of debt with its legal demands. In his dying, the just for the unjust, he took upon himself the debt of sin, that infinitely long invoice, murder, slander, greed, gluttony, lust, pride, evil thoughts, evil words, and one by one, Jesus Christ canceled every debt, paying for it on the cross. Third, the fact that Jesus is now in heaven confirms his identity as the Son of God. Jesus was not the only one in his day to make claims to be the Messiah, to be the one sent of God to save his people. But Jesus was the only one who resurrected and is now in heaven. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the implication of that is that he affirmed his identity as the Son of God. This is what it says in Romans 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That empty tomb is a headline that says this Jesus was telling the truth. It was the ultimate testimony to the truth of his claims during his ministry. And lastly, the fact that he is resurrected and in heaven right now signifies that his payment for our justification was accepted by God the Father. That's what was taking place on the cross. Like we said here, he canceled the record of debt. And the fact that he has risen signifies that that payment he made for that infinitely long invoice from the debt of sin was accepted by God. Romans 4 says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That was God's seal upon the finished work of Christ, that the payment had been accepted and the work of Christ was successful. So this Christ is in heaven now, and Paul tells us that we are to delight in that, to pursue satisfaction in that reality. The second heavenly reality that Paul points us to is that Christ is seated. Look there with me. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, we might be tempted to just skip over that as an inconsequential detail. 
But when do you sit down? If I were to send Tanya out to run an errand for me, she looks comfortable and she looks happy to be sitting right now. And I would imagine that when she accomplished and finished everything that I had asked her to do, she would come back and resume her spot sitting. You sit down when you are finished your work. You sit down at the end of the workday. And here, Jesus is declared to be seated right now. In John 19.30, Jesus Christ on the cross, having lived the perfect life that he came to live, having offered himself as the sacrifice for the sins of the world, at the conclusion of his life, in John 19.30 it says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. There was nothing left for Christ to accomplish. He fully accomplished the work that he came to do. And therefore he is now in heaven seated. Which also means that the outworkings of his victory are unstoppable. Colossians 2, speaking of the the work of Christ and the finished work of Christ, says that Christ triumphed over the rulers and authorities on the cross. He triumphed. The victory was done on the cross. And therefore, God says, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The work has been completely finished. Everything that needed to be purchased and attained was done on the cross. And therefore now, Christ sits. And the unfolding of his work toward the glorious end that God has determined is taking place day by day, week by week, generation by generation, century by century. Through times of peace and through times of peril, through times of seeming victory and seeming defeat for his people, God's unstoppable purposes are marching forward. And this is why he is seated. There is no work left to be done. And the last thing that Paul points here, the last heavenly reality that he calls us to pursue and delight in, is that Christ is at God's right hand. I'll read again. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That image of God's right hand is one that comes up often in Scripture, and it portrays a few different realities. First, it is a place of power. So I'll read a few verses from the Psalms. Psalm 89. You have a mighty arm, Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Psalm 78. And he brought them to this holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. Psalm 60. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give deliverance by your right hand and answer us. The image is used over and over again when the right hand of God is described. It's speaking of the place of power, the power that God extends to carry out his purposes. And here now is Christ seated in that place of power at the right hand of God. And Ephesians 1 also tells us that this place is a place of authority and honor. 
that Christ occupies. Ephesians 1.20 says this, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. So this Christ has occupied in his resurrection a place of authority and honor. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion of this world. And his name is above. He is honored above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So Paul points our hearts to these three heavenly realities that have to do with Christ. Christ is in heaven. He has risen. And he is in heaven seated, having finished the work that he came to accomplish. And he is seated at the right hand in the place of power and honor and authority. Now you may be wondering, how is that Paul's prescription to growth in the Christian life? That's wonderful. These are glorious things. And it is great that Christ has accomplished these things. But what does that have to do with me and you growing as a Christian? And the answer to that is found in the first words of that verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Christians are united to Christ. They are raised with Christ. And therefore, the things that we've just seen described about Jesus are also true of you who are in Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul says that we have been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Our faith is an empty hand that clings to Christ. And in clinging to him, we participate and benefit from all that he has done. So when Jesus overcomes the temptation in the wilderness in the gospel account, you overcame temptation. When Jesus was arrested and beat and scorned and died under the weight of sin, it was your sin that he died under the weight of. When Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and sin, it was the death that you deserve and the sin that you committed that Jesus conquered. You are raised with him. I'm going to read this section from Colossians 2, and I want you to take note in particular how many times the words in him or with him are stated. Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Christ's life is our life as believers. Christ's death is our death as believers. And Christ's victory is our victory. And so, growing in Christ comes as a result of delighting in all that Christ has done because being in Him, you are participating in all that Christ has done. And so 2 Corinthians 3 will tell us that it's as we behold the glory of the Lord that we are transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. Because as we are beholding the risen Christ, we are seeing ourselves having risen with Him and and benefiting from His resurrection. And therefore we become more like Him. So Christian growth is really the process of becoming who we are. Hebrews 10 says that God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So notice the tenses there. It's very important. Those who are being, present tense, sanctified, God has perfected for all time. God has already declared us perfect because of Christ. In Him, we have all the fullness of God and His righteousness And as we are being sanctified, it is that perfection, that declaration of righteousness from God that is the foundation and the fuel to our growth in godliness. John Bunyan, uh, my favorite author, writes in his spiritual autobiography of an experience that he had. He had been wrestling for a long extended period of time with feelings of condemnation and guilt and he would measure himself day by day based on how spiritual he was or how successful he was in his spiritual endeavors and he would go back and forth between peace and turmoil and joy and condemnation and was wrestling for an extended period of time in this state and then he came to this reality he says this but one day as I was passing in the field and that too with some dashes on my conscience fearing lest all was not right Suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness was right before him. I also saw, moreover, That it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Paul calls us to pursue delight in the heavenly realities of Christ. For in so doing, we find ourselves with him, Risen. Then Paul moves on to the second milestone in this map towards Christian maturity. And he tells us this. Meditate on your identity in Christ. Read with me there in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now he's... Contrasting two different things, things that are above and things that are on earth. 
And a few verses later, he's going to use that term earth and earthly things to describe things that are immoral, sinful things. And so he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he goes on to list a number of immoral and sinful things. But I don't think that's how he's using the word here. And I don't think that's what he's contrasting here. When he says, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, think that he's contrasting these two different approaches, these two different economies of righteousness. The one described in chapter 2 that we've read, this one based on human philosophy and earthly wisdom that says, do this and this will be your reward, versus the economy of God, the one that is above described here in this passage. And so he says to set your mind on the former things. Meditate, fill your thoughts, take your thoughts captive and subject them to these realities that are from above. The first being this. You, Christian, are dead to the ceremonial law. That's what he says there in verse 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for or because you have died. And that truth of our deadness to the ceremonial law, the claims that these teachers in chapter 2 were putting upon the Colossian Christians, is the grounds on which we seek the heavenly way of spiritual growth. We are dead to this obsolete system of rules and regulations as a means of attaining righteousness. And we've entered into a new way, what the scripture calls a living way, by faith. And we are now sons and daughters. That is our identity. Dead to the ceremonial law and alive in Christ. And in fact, this ceremonial law, these Old Testament precepts, were never intended to create spiritual maturity in the first place. Under the Old Testament, these laws were meant more than anything to be a witness to our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. That's why in Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are the ceremonial laws. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So picture a huge tablet with all these commands that casts a shadow. And throughout all of human history, Person after person tried to stand in and fill that shadow and found themselves falling short in one way or another. And therefore the law condemned us. The law told us and convinced us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And then Christ comes and he stands in that shadow and he fills it 100% perfectly. Every square inch of that shadow is filled in Christ. Which is why Paul will, will say in Galatians 4, we also, when we were children, when we were under the old covenant, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might have adoption as sons. The law was meant to be a tutor, a teacher instructing us of our need for the Savior. He is the substance that the foreshadow was pointing to. And therefore, we are dead to the ceremonial laws 
of Scripture. Colossians 2 says that we have been buried with him. That's what our baptism as believers is meant to image forth. That we've been buried with Christ and we've been raised to new life in Christ. And that's the second thing that Paul wants to point our attention to. You, Christian, have indestructible life in Christ. Look what he says there. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. By faith, we have been so joined to Christ that our lives are inextricably linked to him. He has laid hold of us, and in granting us faith and repentance, has, has enabled us to lay hold of him, such that our very lives are hidden with him in God. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Peter says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So our lives are hidden, embedded in Christ, such that we have indestructible life in Christ. And then lastly, Paul says that you, Christian, will be united with Christ forever on the last day. Look at verse 4 there. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is a day when Jesus Christ will appear again here on earth. The Bible speaks of the return of Christ, the great hope of the church. And here in this verse, Paul says that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. And there is, from those truths, a great sobriety and also a great fear and a great joy that comes as we contemplate the fact that we will join together with Christ in glory. A sobriety because we realize that our life today and every day really does have eternal significance. We do not, as some say, simply vanish when we take our last breath on this earth. But that we, as this verse teaches, will be joined to Christ. We will appear with him in glory. And therefore, every day has eternal significance. It can also breed a healthy fear because we understand that we will stand before our Savior, who sees all, who has given us life, and we will give an account of that life, how we stewarded the life and the gifts and the opportunities and the callings 
that God has entrusted to us. It also ought to breed a deep and abiding joy because our eternal existence will be in the presence of the most glorious being in all of the universe. This shapes how we respond to temptations and trials in this life. And that's his aim here. He's giving us a blueprint to grow up into Christ. And he points our attention to the fact that on the last day, we will appear with him in glory. Elsewhere in scripture, he says that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The appearing of Christ in his glory on the last day, when we will be united to him, is of such a nature that it casts a shadow on all of our present experiences and helps us to see them in light of the end that God is working all things towards. And so Paul would say that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we look to the things, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When temptation comes to us, the promise reward of sin can only ever be temporal. Sin can offer us no lasting reward. And so Paul would have us fix our attention and our mind and our meditations upon the eternal one whose glory we will behold and live in forever. God alone in his goodness can grant everlasting joy. And he calls us to a life that leads to that everlasting joy. Martin Luther said, there are only two days in my calendar. This day and that day. And we would do well to be shaped by that reality that we arise every day and we pursue delight in the heavenly realities and we set our mind and our meditations upon that day when we will appear with Christ in glory. The second coming of Christ at the end of human history is as sure as the first coming of Christ was. And our eternal joy is as sure as his second coming. That lens, that reality, colors every single one of our interactions and spurs us to holy living. Like, like 1 John 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself now. So we contemplate that Christ will once again appear, and that we too will appear with him in glory. It has a purifying effect in our hearts and a worship-evoking effect in our hearts. So here in this passage, we have the blueprint that Paul is laying down, the foundations of Christian growth. It's not what our worldly wisdom would conclude. It goes in complete contradiction to the teaching of the false teachers in chapter 2, who had a worldly philosophy. But it is the foundation in which God has invested his power for us to lay hold of. By delighting in the exalted Christ, and by meditating upon our identity in Christ, we will experience his enabling grace 
that transforms us into clearer and clearer reflections of his character. And in so doing, God brings glory to the one who saved us, his son Jesus, and makes much of the gospel by which we are saved. We are risen with Christ, who conquered sin and death, the one who completely finished the work of salvation, and the one who has all honor and authority. We have died to the earthly prescription of spirituality and have been given indestructible life in Christ, which will unfailingly end in our eternal glory. And as we make these rock-solid truths, the meditations of our minds and the delight of our hearts, day by day, we will experience the life of Christ in our souls and find desires and ability in our hearts to live the high calling of the Christian life. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Grant, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts and minds to apply your truth in ways that mere words can't. Grant us, Lord, true delight in the heavenly realities of the victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And grant us, Lord, minds that are stayed upon your truth, convinced of our death to sin and to the law and our life, eternal life, indestructible life in Christ our Savior. Amen.